This is Jeff Deist, and you're listening to the Human Action Podcast. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back once again to the Human Action Podcast, and happy 2021 to all of you. It's the first show of the year. We'll be doing it generally on Friday afternoons from here on out. And as, as most of you know, this is one of the few podcasts which is not afraid of to read books, to discuss books, and mostly in the area of dense economics, but also sometimes in related fields like history and philosophy and logic and uh, politics. So we had a great 2020, went through some very serious books, had a lot of good back and forth with the audience, and we're really excited about a new year. So all that said, we're going to start off with a book that I mentioned in my last show with Tom Woods, The Ethics of Money Production by Guido Holzman, who many of you know is one of our senior fellows, who is uh, originally from Germany, but teaches and runs a PhD program at the University of Angers in France. And I thought there'd be nobody better to help me work through this book than a friend of mine, Stefan Levera. Uh, many of you know him from his Bitcoin podcast. Uh, he lives in Sydney, Australia, so he's joining us from a different time zone. And Stefan, I'm going to tell you this. You know, I don't, I don't sort of live day to day in the Bitcoin community, to put it mildly. And there's so much white noise. There, there's just so many people talking, so much crosstalk that to make my life easier... You and Safi Namus are the two people that I really rely on <laughs> to, to help me understand and to not to, and to basically sift through everything out there. Yeah, well, thank you very much, Jeff. It's an honor. I'm a big fan of you and of the Mises Institute. So uh, very excited to chat with you today about truly the ethics of money production. It is one of my favorite books, and I often talk about it on my podcast. I often recommend it to my listeners who are trying to learn a little bit more about, you know, what has government done to our money? Just like the Murray Rothbard book. Well, and it's because I've heard you mention it that I thought of you for this show. Does that mean that this book has some purchase or some resonance in the Bitcoin community? Do you think it's reasonably well known out there? Because the Bitcoin community and the Austrian community have a lot of overlap, but they're not contiguous necessarily. Of course. Yeah. So I think to, to some limited extent, a lot of people coming into the Bitcoin world, because they listen to my show, I've been promoting Austrian economics to them. And so some of them, as they come down that Bitcoin rabbit hole, some of them also go down the Austrian rabbit hole. And so they typically DM me and ask me things. And, you know, I'm often telling them, oh, hey, you've got to look at the ethics of money production, go and read this book. And, it, and once you read it, it really does uh, set things in a new light for you. And so for me, I mean, my experience reading this book was just, it was just, it was a real page turner. I, I actually remember um, the night I was, I've, I've read it for the first time, like my friend uh, Bitstein, Michael Goldstein had uh, recommended it to me. And um, I was traveling for work at the time. And I was, you know, um, had finished work for the day. And I was back in my hotel and I was reading this book online. And I remember literally just reading it in one night. And it was just a phenomenal experience. I really, really enjoyed it. Well, and Stefan mentions reading it online. You can find it for free at Mises.org to read. Just type in the ethics of money production in the search bar. Uh, it's not super long. It's about 240, 250 pages. So it's a bit of a slim volume in hardcover. Came out in 2008. And one of the things that struck me reviewing the book again, Stefan, was that in the introduction, he talks about how it's really an ontology of money. In other words, it's a book uh, broadly about the actual metaphysical underlying nature of money itself. And I was struck that there's a little bit 
of an analogy to Safedine's Bitcoin Standard book, because even though the title is The Ethics of Money Production, a lot of the book is not directly about that. It's about uh, the broader history of money, uh, about banking practices, about fiduciary media, about fractional reserve, about historical gold standards. So it really is a great overall money book, for even for a novice. Exactly right. And I think, it, as you say, it just places so much of the context, whether that is from a legal perspective, an economic perspective, a historical perspective, and also uh, in the ethics of money production, some element of religious perspective as well, where there's some level of situating it amongst uh, Christian and Catholic thought also. And uh, yeah, just for me, uh, it just really clarified so many things and stated them in a very clean and precise way. So you as you read this book, you really start to understand a range of things. And you might have heard them elsewhere, put them put in another way, as I had also. But I think it was just the way that Dr. Holzman puts it in this book, that to me was just so magical. It was such a great experience to read it and just have it all laid out so clearly. Like there are certain ideas, for example, that uh, no fiat money had ever existed without kind of first being linked to natural and commodity money such as gold and so it's kind of like a really nicely cleanly put way of uh trying to understand how money originates and then how it is essentially the process of it's getting co-opted by the government mm -hmm. well and the other thing is since there's so much history in here Halsman's not the kind of person to shy away from acknowledging that there are uh moral and ethical components and as a result, we need to bring in, let's say, the scholastics, uh, Thomas Aquinas, uh, traditional uh, Catholic intellectualism. And he's not scared of that stuff. I mean, some people would say, oh, that has no place in a book about money. But uh, of course, it does have a place in a book about money. And what, what strikes me is that I think if you went to the average econ PhD out there, you know, they would they would readily say that there is... Uh, you know, something, uh, there's an element of justice to how money is distributed in society. But they'd rarely say that there's an element of justice to how it's produced. And that's, I think, one of the really big revelations of this book. Exactly. And I think that's one of the things that perhaps is difficult to communicate to somebody who's not in our world, let's say, of the Austrian uh, um, world of thinking, that there really is a justice component to this as well that it's it really is about what is the right way that money should be created and whether it you know it needs a, a central planner or whether it can be determined the supply of that money can actually be determined be determined on the market itself and so that's a very challenging uh i guess question for people who are not already in the Austrian sphere but it, it i think when you read the book and you sort of take in that perspective it really yeah, it just really changes your perspective on things. Well, what's been interesting for me as sort of a, a bit of an outsider to observe in the Bitcoin Twitter sphere is how people talk about time production and people talk about saving and people talk about applying thrift in their own lives because obviously they're big believers in Bitcoin. And so instead of buying that, uh, you know, 35 bucks worth of sushi and cocktails tonight, uh, they'd rather have a, a, a tiny bit more Bitcoin. And, and it strikes me that whether it's uh, uh, intentional or not, whether it's conscious or not, whether it's because of Austrian principles or not, that that 
that there's something about Bitcoin and a, a super hard currency, which is hopefully gaining value over time, that teaches the lessons of thrift, which is sort of the opposite of fiat. Exactly right. And this is a point that Safedean makes, I make this, and a bunch of the other guys in the Bitcoin world who are into Austrian economics were talking about how you know, society, as uh, Hans Hermann Hopper says, it's you know, capital accumulation is what sets off society. And by enabling uh, this process with savings, that is really what enables us to be so much more productive. And so I think this is something that has spilled over into the Bitcoin world and people will generally, they will genuinely be talking about time preference and why we should try to lower our time preference. And this is like a good thing for us and for our own behavior and to think more about our families and the, what we're going to leave behind after we're gone, which is also an expression of a lower time preference. Well, and of course, in an inflationary environment where interest rates are low or even nominally negative, and certainly negative in real terms uh, compared to inflation, saving is for chumps. Exactly. Yeah, that is unfortunately the hard reality. And I think it's Okay, so for me, I'm in my early to mid 30s. And I remember even when I was young, there was a bit more of a culture of, hey, you save in the bank account and you get some interest. Mm -hmm. But nowadays, you don't even really get any interest. The savings accounts in banks are just getting completely, you're just getting annihilated in there. And so now I think that is also what this whole Bitcoin movement is about. It's actually trying to bring back the idea of saving. It's making savings cool again. And we have to really set the cart set set everything right again where the world has come into this perspective of putting the you know the cart before the horse of produce of consuming first we have to now reorient ourselves and think more okay no it's about savings building our capital using up using technology so that we can produce and then we can consume that's actually the way it should be yes it is the way it should be and it feels like we're so far from that um when I look at the way this book is structured at the beginning uh, part of the book, The Natural Production of Money, a question that struck me that I would ask you in particular is, is Bitcoin natural? Would it, ever, <laughs> would it have arisen regardless of central bank depredations or is it sort of a reactionary force against fiat? I, I do think of it as a reactionary force. I think of it like all these prior attempts at money were tried and failed. Now, you know, and in fairness, it's not that gold itself failed. It's more just like the folly was trusting the government. And so there were, you know, there were earlier attempts at uh, money, whether they were in a crypto form or whether they were in a more just, you know, a business form, right? Uh, you know, Liberty Reserve, e-gold and so on. And in the crypto world, it was things like Hashcash, B-Money, BitGold. All of none of those worked basically. All of them got shut down for, for one reason or another. But Bitcoin has been around for now for 12 years and uh, it continues to uh, rise. And I see it as essentially it achieves what human institutions could not. Because I think part of and this is also coming back to the book as well. I think part of it, uh, Dr. Horsman talks about how some of the different forms of money uh, in history they relied to some level on the credibility of their issuer. And so that was where if you had um, coins that were minted by a certain maker, that that would help uh, people have some level of assurance about, you know, okay, oh, I know it's this brand coin and it's, you know, one ounce or whatever the denomination is. And then 
talking about how it transitioned forward into oh okay now we're going to have you know paper money but it's like by this person in some sense bitcoin is like a the durability if you will like if we're thinking of the durability of money i think bitcoin achieves that in a certain way because we know that the issuer can't be corrupted it's it's a program <laughs> that we all run when we run our bitcoin node and our bitcoin software so i yeah but i think you're right that it's it's it it doesn't it doesn't evolve as like a you know it's not like gold it's not just like naturally existing it had to be created and it has to be maintained but i think taking some of those lessons uh, allow us to understand that money doesn't necessarily have to be tangible well the notion that is today of course completely lost and by today i mean in the era of unbridled central banking is that money should gain purchasing power over time. And this is considered anathema for, for a, a number of bizarre reasons. I guess chief amongst them is that expansionary monetary policy benefits governments. Of <laughs> and course. So, and, and so uh, governments and central banks work together to make each other happy. But I want to direct your attention and the listener's attention to page 65 of this book, because in just a little four or five page section, subsection of the book, Guido Halsman gives an absolute masterclass on the benefits of deflation and takes a sword to, I believe, six different rationales for why deflation is a bad thing. And it struck me as, as something that we should put out, maybe as a separate article or something, just Halsman on, disabuses the deflation myth because it was just... The, the, I mean, that's where this book really shines because it's a short, readable tract, but man, oh man, do you get something out of those five pages. Yeah, so in the fighting deflation section, um, I actually was uh, so I was uh, yeah reviewing last night as well, and it uh, there are six arguments here. One is this idea that deflation has negative repercussions on aggregate production and therefore on the standard of living, and and then they they also talk about how oh because of deflation we're going to postpone our buying because everyone's speculating mm-hmm. that it's going to be lower. And he just absolutely just goes through and blasts away all of like all of these different six uh, justifications because uh, he essentially firstly points out that deflation has no clear negative impact on aggregate production, and so it's it's not like we had lower growth rates in uh, this kind of under that kind of monetary order, and uh, he he even takes it to the extreme and says, okay. Um, in the case where people are talking about delaying their production, even if you're a neurotic miser, you still have the constraint of the stomach. You still have to eat, right? We still have to mm-hmm. live. And so even in that case, he's saying, look, hoarding is not necessarily, it's not per se a problem because there are all these other X, Y, and Z uh, downstream impacts of that, if you if you will. And so as an example, to the extent that you and I hoard our money, it just raises everybody else's purchasing power because we're not buying anything with that money. We're, we're giving up that, you know, in, in, in some sense, we're relinquishing the ability to, uh, or at least temporarily, relinquishing the consumption that we could have had. Um, and, and I think uh, he, he also spells out some elements around servicing debt as well. So he's talking here a little bit about how you have to anticipate uh, the inflation expectations. So that kind of is a theme in this book. Um, But I think one really, really crucial point here that he also really drives home in this section is he's saying bank credit 
does not create resources, right? So the typical, mm-hmm. like a typical argument we might hear from the mainstream is something like, oh, but we need lending so that businesses and entrepreneurs can go and you know, get capital to run their business. But Dr. Holzman here is pointing out that, no, no, hold on, that's not true. That's, well, that's not exactly right. Really, you can extend credit to somebody, but really all you're doing is you are channeling the existing resources into some other business than the one that would have already had it. Mm-hmm. And so I think that is a very, very kind of basic point, but it's so lost in today's mainstream commentary. And so that and that reflects when people say, oh, but if we didn't have um, fiat money and fractional reserve banking and these cheap interest rates, then entrepreneurs would not be able to borrow to get the resources they need. And that it's just, it's, it's like, no, that's, that's just fundamental misunderstanding of what's going on here. And of course, nobody can provide a definition of hoarding. It just means too much, right? There's never as a percentage or anything else. And of course, by hoarding, what we're doing, what we should really say is maintaining larger cash balances than we otherwise would. Uh, Hoarding just means that we are voluntarily shrinking the money supply. And sure, if, if there's less, you know, if there's sort of less demand for money, uh, then interest rates might fall, and people who have borrowed money at three percent and now earning one percent, they may be in trouble. But as Halsman points out, that that you know that just changes who owns the resources. It doesn't provide any diminution in them. And and so I thought that was just such a masterful little section of the book that everyone would benefit from. And uh, he alludes to a point which Rothbard makes very uh, succinctly in what has government done to our money, which is we don't care about the money supply per se, right? The total amount of money in society, because as long as it's infinitely divisible, we can always readjust prices. So, you know, I'm struck by some criticisms of Bitcoin in the sense that the ultimate limit in the number of Bitcoins mineable at 21 million, um, some people would say, well, that you're setting an artificial ceiling on the money supply. Right. And so it's the same answer, essentially. It's that these those 21 million Bitcoins are divisible down to 100 million Satoshis or Sats for short. And with other technical ways of doing this, it could be subdivided even further. So essentially, the price would just rise to adapt for these things. And so, uh, yeah, certainly, um, I think that is a point that Holzman really drives home here um, in terms of uh, the ability to adapt you know, um, around how, why the supply of money per se doesn't matter. And I think it's also um, really uh, another point is that he raises in deflation and liberty as well. So that's also another really nice short version um, articulation of many of these points also. You know, Bob Higgs uses the term regime uncertainty. But when we have these hiccups every 10 or 12 years, remember central banks were supposed to smooth out the booms and busts? Well, we just had one in 07 or 08. Now we're having one in 2020. Um, it strikes me that regime uncertainty could apply to central banking too, because when you have crazed fiscal and monetary policy, you know, wow, Im- imagine being out there and trying to plan your business. Let's say you're a big multinational. You know, imagine trying to understand where interest rates are and, and whether you should borrow or invest or buy your own stock back or keep more cash or not have any cash. Or if you're Michael Saylor, even exchange cash for Bitcoin on your balance sheet. I mean, with, with all of these uh, tremendous sort of, you know, we talk, they talk about volat- volatility. I mean, central banks, to me, are exceedingly volatile. Mm. 
Yeah, of course. And I think that um, come, this comes into this whole question around monetary stability as well. So, and I think Guido Holzman uh, explains this in the book as well. He talks about two forms of it. He talks one about stability of physical integrity and then stability of purchasing power. And the stability of the purchasing power part is something that we can never really have because really the world is always changing. There's always um, some errors being made somewhere or some changing condition and people's desire to hold cash will raise, you know, rise or that will go up or down. Um, but in terms of us knowing what the final supply of this thing is, well, at least in a Bitcoin sense, we do know that. And in a gold sense, we know that there are you know, certain natural checks, if you will, on the creation of new gold or the mining of gold to produce it into gold coins and so on that we could use theoretically if we were to live under a gold standard and so i think that is a real benefit there for those people who are using market chosen money such as gold or bitcoin that uh, they are not as susceptible or vulnerable to the vagaries of what's going on with central banking and uh, certainly i think central banks have put us into a very weird situation where people are now, you know, as Michael Saylor would put it, we're sitting on an ice, on a melting ice cube. And now we all have to think about what to do about that. And uh, even, even in um, ethics of money production, there's discussion about how for many people, when they want to save to end, especially towards the end of their life, they, they might need a financial advisor. They might need a tax planner and they might need to watch the financial markets. And even then, if they're unlucky, they might still end up with a lot of their life savings getting inflated or lost because of having been pushed into playing the financial markets. So that's a real shame. It is a shame, especially at a time in people's lives where they should be out of markets and just sort of living off of capital and interest. And one of the things that this book, I think, lays out equally well is, is the case against inflation. In other words, if deflation is not the boogeyman we thought, it's actually a desirable state of affairs, then it follows that inflation must be an undesirable state of affairs. And I like the way that Halsman separates between what he calls private inflation and fiat or state inflation. So talk about that a little bit. Oh, of course. Yes. So I, I guess if I had to maybe summarize into maybe I'm, maybe I'm not as precisely stating it, but it's sort of like in a fully free market, there would be some level, like a natural level of inflation that might occur as people go and mine new gold. And there would be a, 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 a normal, almost like a countervailing balance factor where if too much of that gets mined, well, then the return for going and mining new gold goes down such that there would be a level over time of natural production. And I think Historically, uh, as people like Safedean have pointed out, that level is something like one and a half to two percent inflation of gold per year, hypothetically. But what happens in the fiat world once the government co-opts the money and puts in its monetary interventions, such as legal tender laws, central banking, the lender of last resort, you know, implicit and explicit bailout guarantees—all of these things that essentially cause what Holzman calls a race to the bottom that they essentially create this scenario for fiat inflation, which now we get a bit more technical and it's kind of how much of that is directly printed by the central bank versus how much of that is printed by the commercial banks, but in a central banking regime, in a fundamental fractional reserve banking regime where this is permitted. And so 
historically, we find the inflation rate in that kind of scenario to be a lot higher. That's more like seven or eight percent, or depending on what country, you know, you you might be paying fifteen or twenty percent in in a kind of inflation hidden tax, and that's fiat inflation. Well, and so one thing that commercial banks do within that central bank regime, as you describe, is they issue fiduciary media, or what we would call unbacked money substitutes. And the the extent to which they do this depends on a lot of things. Uh, it depends on um, their capital constraints. It depends on the lending market. It depends on the credit credit worthiness and demand for credit of borrowers and that sort of thing. But at the end of the day, we end up not only in our Byzantine banking system we have today, not only with a, a bunch of sort of first level fiduciary media, a bunch of unbacked money substitutes, many, many people making uh, or ha- holding paper claims to the same underlying uh, reserves at a bank. But we have something even beyond that where a degree of moneyness, I guess we could call it, it becomes in a de facto way assigned to things even like U.S. Treasury debt or maybe certain Goldman Sachs bonds. I mean, things that are that almost seem so liquid that they become money substitutes of a sort. And so when we start to think about the monetary base or M1 or M2 or the what we used to call M3 before the Fed stopped tracking it, um, in, in fact, this sort of ticking time bomb out there in the form of claims to real money, which cannot be satisfied, might be far, far larger than we imagine. And you know, we've, we've had glimpses of this with collateralized debt obligations, tranches sliced up uh, around housing, for example, in 2008. And today we have a word for this, shadow banking. And so if you listen to people like Caitlin Long, uh, the, the real nuclear weapon out there might be uh, all of this stuff that is awfully akin to money out there, but which doesn't have any real money underlying it. Precisely. And I think it's what we have to look at is the overarching conditions under which we live under. It's that because of uh, these initial conditions that the government has done, because the government wants to control the money, right? Legal tender laws, blah, blah, blah. We live in this world of cheap debt. And I think the system evolved in that way, or it kind of grew up in that way. And because of that, now we have these huge markets for debt and for bonds. And that obviously helps the government because the government relies on that for debt funding as opposed to fully tax funding everything. And then, as you were saying, then we've got this whole weird, crazy scenario where there are like corporate treasurers out there who are looking out for these kinds of risks and thinking, well, maybe I'm better off. uh, Even though I know I'm going to lose money, I'll hold some US treasuries because uh, that that for me is quote unquote safer than leaving it in these banks where the deposit guarantee only goes up to a certain level. So it's kind of a, it's a confusing and very technical world with all these weird little nooks and crannies. And so what we historically thought of as, oh, okay, it's just M0 and then it pyramids up and M1 and M2. And it's like, now it's more just like, there's all this money out there and people like Jeffrey Snyder and Caitlin Long and others are, are kind of helping point out that, well, maybe the Federal Reserve doesn't actually have the best picture of what's going on out there because there are people trading, if you will, a synthetic dollar around and about. And so I I think all of this is, we've been put into this scenario, I think under a natural order of economics and money, we would, I think, tend towards a full reserve system where people would demand 
uh, uh, higher level assurances over their money. Whereas now, because we've been pushed into this fractional reserve system, and part of that was government influence, right? It's legal tender laws. It's forcing us to treat these inferior, uh, as you said, fiduciary media, these substitutes for money, they're, they're not as though they were real US dollar. And so I think it, it that it we've been pushed into this system because of that. And that's what we've that's now why we're seeing this kind of outgrowth of excesses of that system. Well, imagine that we have all this weaponized, unbacked money out there. And imagine furthermore that we don't even know the number because some of it is sort of traded privately and it's not easily accessible, you know, in the Wall Street Journal or something to figure out uh, where, where it all is. And so some of the estimates of total worldwide debt, sovereign and otherwise, might in that sense be askew because uh, some of this moneyness, some of these money substitutes are basically claims that look a lot like debt. So you put it all together and you say, well, what if there was a big crash someday and the US dollar lost its status? And what would things look like afterwards? You recently had a guest on your own show, an important guest, a famous guest, Niall Ferguson, and he laid out some monetary scenarios, one of which would be you know, some sort of ugly hyperinflation and a few others. One that he didn't mention, and Halsman alludes to some sort of international system potentially you know, that would replace Bretton Woods or post-Bretton Woods in his book here. But I'm sure you've heard of the idea of the IMF becoming the backstop to central banks. So just as central banks were originally designed, at least allegedly, to back up commercial banks, then there would be a central bank for central banks and in, in under the auspices of the IMF, and they would issue what are called SDR, special drawing rights, which at least at the beginning, and they exist already, but at least under some new regime would consist of a basket of currencies to make a bunch of countries sort of comfortable and willing to go along at first. Maybe it would contain the U.S. dollar and the Chinese yuan and the Swiss franc, and maybe it would contain a few commodities like gold. And slowly over time, these SDRs would sort of become their own money. They would take on moneyness characteristics without having necessary underlying value. And this is something people like Jim Rickards have talked about. And you can say it's slightly conspiratorial, or you can say, no, 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 that's exactly what uh, world leaders will rush to and clamor for if there is some sort of currency breakdown. So I know off to the side, there's a bunch of people screaming right now saying Bitcoin fixes this. But uh, but apart from that, um, what do you think about the, the concept of internationalization of currencies? Because now we have sovereign countries issuing their own currencies, their own debt, and um, since everybody's got their own self-interest, you could see a, a really nasty global worldwide recession uh, being used as justification to say, no, 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 we need one overarching monetary body. Right. I think the if it was going to be that, that sort of system, yeah, I think this whole IMF, SDR thing, maybe that's a possibility. I see it like a lot of central banks around the world now are experimenting and doing trials on this idea of central bank digital currencies. So potentially they try to make uh, an SDR that is some kind of CBDC and they try to placate the different powers of the world essentially based on their political or military might and say, okay, USA or okay, China, you get this much of the basket and it, to try to give, you know, give them some level of... Um, you know, power in the, at the, at the, you know, give them a seat at the table and so on. I think maybe that's, uh, if, if anything, that's kind of like what happened with Facebook and Libra and how they sort of got, you know, really smacked down hard because they were essentially challenging the power, openly challenging the power of, you know, governments and their money. So I think 
potentially the CBDC kind of thing um, is uh, an, an avenue that they try to go down. I think what we will see, though, and I think this this very much reminds me of a point I read from um, uh, Hunter and Hopper's article, how is fiat money possible? Because I think he, he takes it back to saying, well, hang on, why do we use money? We use the most saleable one. And if we were to use a basket of commodities, then the basket of commodities would not be saleable as saleable as the most saleable one inside that basket. Mm. Mm-hmm. So I see it like we're probably likely to just limp along for a little while on the US dollar for a while until the world chooses something better. Uh, but I think, of course, the, the governments around the world will try. I think they will try central bank digital currencies. Um, I just see it like it, it, we're just going to kind of limp along for a while. I don't, I don't know if it'll be like a big, great crash. I just think it would just be like a Japanification of the world uh, that we just kind of, because I, I guess the way I see it is, and I, I'm pretty sure you would agree, is that many of the governments and central banks have painted themselves into a corner. They, under their own kind of frameworks, theoretically, they, you know, they should be thinking, oh, we need to raise the rates, but governments are in massive, massive debt. They can't afford that kind of thing. So the best they can do is to try to just eke it out for as long as they can. And I think that's probably the reality for a lot of this is we might think, oh, look, this system is unsustainable. It's going down, but we don't know when it's going down and they can just kind of eke it out for as long as they can. Yes, I think that's probably a a likely scenario that we'd all just become zombies like Japan and people would sort of get used to the idea that you don't earn interest on money and we would sort of limp along and we'd have uh, uh, you know, declining economic fortunes, and and maybe all of that could just happen slowly over decades, so that we don't scream too loudly. I hope that's not the case here. Uh, it's it's frightening, but you know what this book is about. I guess on some level is that all of this makes us worse people. It makes us uh, present oriented. It makes us gloomy about the future. It makes us not save and put away for future generations. And you don't even have to have a family. You, you know, you just understand civilizationally, we're all standing on the shoulders of previous generations that helped create all the material wealth and abundance that those of us who are fortunate enough to live in places like Australia and the United States enjoy every day. And the idea that that material wealth will continue to organize itself around us, regardless of incentives, regardless of the quality of money, and that we can degrade our money without degrading ourselves societally, I think is just it's crazy. You're right. And it, it, I guess, to put it simply, regress is possible. I think we have become so, what's the word, entitled. And mm. we have become so, as a society, right, we've become so entitled and we think everything is just going to be progress. It's always this kind of upwards arc of history and so on. I guess that's more of a progressive idea. But still, people just do not appreciate how fragile society can be and how things could break down if we don't appreciate the things that make our you know humanity great and our ability to trade and transact and and to you know uh, save across time and space and all of these things um and dr holzman points out in the book that there's spiritual casualties of fiat inflation and he points out that it changes the way people act it makes people act in a more materialistic way it means they are less uh, able to perhaps care for their own families and societies and to some extent that makes them less of an independent man able to help their family and friends and they become more dependent and they become more submissive and they become more uh, 
you know, pliant and willing to do what the state and docile. And perhaps that is also part of the reason we have not seen as much of a pushback against all of this, you know, hysteria 19 government stuff is that people have had their financial self-reliance taken from them. Now they are more dependent on the uh, being in the good graces of the people around them. And they don't want to say anything bad in case they get fired or in case they, you know, you know, lose their ability to feed their family. And so th there really is this kind of spiritual and cultural consequence of inflation. And I think, uh, Guido Holzman does a great job in this book trying to tease that out and explain that to people because I think to a person in the mainstream media, they may look at this and think, what, what do you mean? Like fiat money can cause degenerate behavior, but it really can if you actually look through and trace through the implications of fiat money. Well, and we saw an example of that on this show just a few weeks ago when we covered Adam Ferguson's When Money Dies. And he talks about the uh, period of hyperinflation in Weimar Germany, Weimar Germany, and the uh, you know the depredations that caused, the privations that caused, the the rape, the prostitution, the you know the theft, the, the creating orphans. I mean, it, it was really something. And we tend to view central bankers, Stefan, as these sort of dry technocratic guys who went to Wharton or something or Oxford. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And you know, we tend to think that they're just dialing knobs around and looking at spreadsheets all day and that they exist in an ethical vacuum. Exactly, exactly right. And so I think there really is a moral element to using and promoting sound money. Well, we'll finish with this. The conclusion, the final chapter of this book is just fantastic. And again, Halsman, who happens to be a devout Catholic, uh, you know, he quotes John Paul II here with a really great definition of capitalism. And, and I just want to, I'm just going to read John Paul II's uh, quote here because I think it's great. Because oftentimes, even people in the libertarian sphere say, no, 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 we shouldn't use the term capital. That's a slur. Marx created it. It, it implies the uh, untoward accumulation of capital in, in the hands of a few people. Uh, whereas, you know, Mises used that term to mean private ownership. He used that term to mean social cooperation in markets, that it was really the best system for well-being throughout society. So here's, here's John Paul II. He says, if by capitalism it's meant an economic system which recognizes the fundamental and positive role of business, I don't think we'd hear Francis say that, by the way, uh, <laughs> the, the market, private property, and the resulting responsibility for the means of production, as well as free human creativity in the economic sector, then the answer is certainly in the affirmative. So I, I thought that was interesting. And then he goes on to give, uh, you know, a uh, sort of a dog-eat-dog -dog version of capital. He says, that's, that's not what I mean by capitalism. So, uh, uh, you know, it's, it's just, it leads Halsman to say that in this regard, as we have shown, there's no fundamental disagreement between the views of the Austrians and the Catholic moral concerns. So, you know, I guess some people don't want to see that sort of thing in a book and uh, about money and economics. And I understand that. But the flip side is that I think everything needs to be placed in the context. And you can't understand the history of where we, how we got here without understanding some of the religious and ethical uh, components of, you know, that drove people's worldviews for centuries. Of course. Yeah, I think so. And I think we, you know, we grew up in this society with these kinds of values. And this was the way we, um, this was the, yeah, this is the way it evolved. And uh, I guess, you know, whether you're religious or not, I think you, you certainly will take a lot from this book. I um, 
I, I think even on my, on my reading of it, I, I really don't see, you know, if you're not a Catholic or not a Christian, that you would still not learn a, a great deal from from reading this book. Well, we're going to leave it at that. Again, ladies and gentlemen, you can find this book at Mises.org. Just uh, in the search bar, type in The Ethics of Money Production. There's, It's available free there in PDF form. If you want to purchase it from the Mises.org store, uh, use the code HAPOD for Human Action Podcast and get 10% off. Uh, before we go, I want to thank our guest, the great Stefan Levera, uh, for joining us. Stefan, uh, just real quickly, tell people how they can follow you, how they can find you on Twitter and find your podcast. Oh, of course, just look me up, Stefan Levera, and my website is stefanlevera.com. And thank you very much, Jeff. It's been an honor to chat with you. Same here. I, I, I wish you everything for the best in 2021, and I hope Sydney uh, remains a great city to live in. <laughs> thank you, Jeff, and same to you. The Human Action Podcast is available on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Spotify, Google Play, and on Mises.org. Subscribe to get new episodes every week and find more content like this on Mises.org.